You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, and I am sans Billy Galanco today, as Billy is gallivanting around the Italian countryside. Uh, He spent some time in Piemonte region, um, as well as Milan, and he'll share a little bit more about that next week. But for this episode, we have a pretty straightforward look today. We have actually two different interviews uh, that we pre-recorded uh, previously, so you you will hear Billy's voice on those. We wanted to take a deep dive into wine branding. This is a side of the wine business that we haven't talked about very much, uh, but we wanted to give a look into what it takes to build a brand around both a wine region and then also a wine producer and wine label. Um, two different kind of approaches and sides of the business, but thought they would be interesting to talk to two professionals who hold jobs in those roles um, and just to explore what it takes to build a reputable wine brand. And as I said, we have two separate conversations to share today. Um, the first is with Joel Peterson, who's the executive director of the Passerables Wine Country Alliance. Um, he's an advocate for Passerables as um, a region, as it's been emerging over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, it's really a place for people to experience high-quality wine in California's central coast, and he's at the forefront of establishing both continuity and brand for that region, but also bringing uh, wine producers in that region together around a central story and mission. Then we're going to welcome Megan O'Connor, who's the brand director at Treasury Wine Estates. Uh, Treasury oversees a number of brands, uh, some of which you may recognize. And Megan spoke with us about the wine producer and wine label side of branding, really discussing what it takes to build a reputable wine brand that tells a story which resonates with consumers, really from the ethos of the company and messaging all the way to what's on the label. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this view into the wine business from a branding perspective. And without further ado, here is our interview with Joel. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Why don't you give our listeners just a little bit of an overview of how you come into the wine space and what your kind of role is in the Paso wine scene? Sure. Yeah. My name is Joel Peterson. I'm the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance's executive director. So we are an association based organization that's made up of about 180 wineries here in Paso Robles, California. Most of you guys know that sits kind of right in the heart of the California Central Coast, which is halfway between LA and San Francisco. In addition to wineries, we've got growers who are a part of our association, as well as hospitality members and associates. So anywhere from, you know, tour operators, hotels, restaurants, anyone who kind of wants to be in and around the wine scene here in Paso Robles is a member of our association. I've been in this role for four years. That's been a really cool ride. Obviously, a couple of those years have been during a pandemic, but we've actually thrived, which we can get into later about how Paso Robles did during the pandemic. And then, yeah, I was kind of a wine geek throughout high school, I mean, not high school, I should say through college. And uh, I, I worked a harvest for Justin Vineyards and Winery in Harvest of 01. I fell in love with it, wanted to get into... The production space on some level, I thought. Went back. To, I was living in LA at the time. Went back to LA and finished up my job there. Came back and moved here in Paso was in 03. And I've been here ever since. I've worked for the bigger wineries such as Triana and Hope Family Wines. I was there for a long time doing communications and marketing. I worked for little guys at a boutique agency where we did guys like Adelaida, Halter Ranch, Thatcher, and Alta Kalina. 
Mm. And then had a two-year affair with craft beer. I went over to Firestone Walker Brewing Company and I headed up to some of the marketing efforts there for a couple of years. And then when this role came open to lead the association, it was a dream come true. So hopped on, got that job in January of 2019. And so here we are. But it's a cool space. Pastor Robles is obviously doing really well right now. So I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, there's so much in Paso where, like you said, like the beer scene, which is super cool to have that alongside wine because I feel like sometimes this can happen in, uh, both when you go to a brewery or you go to a winery. I don't drink beer. I go to a brewery and they're like, yeah, we have no wines. We don't even have tap water here. It's just beer. Uh, it's cool that you can go to Paso and get yeah. some like serious craft beers, microbreweries and such. And also a really, like you said, a really broad selection of wine. For sure. Yeah. It's been yeah. good. So we had... Jason Haas on last week, actually, um, with a nice intro from Joel. It would be great if you could, we asked him to do a little bit, but since he's, you know, he's focused more on their properties, could you give us a little overview on Paso and kind of like the different subsections on how, you know, number one, the size, cause you can't travel yeah. you know, for a while and taste all over, but then also how that leads to different styles of wines that could be made. Yeah, absolutely. So Pastoral was actually one of the largest AVAs here in American viticultural areas in California. It's about 30 miles, almost north to south and then 20 miles east to west. So it's a large area, but it's about it's just over 600,000 acres in terms of, you know, a, a total acreage. And then under Vine, you have about 40,000 acres. A good amount under that has happened in the last, say, five to seven years in terms of growth. It's now, as of 2014, it was kind of subdivided up into some what we call nested AVAs. It's, everything still has to have the password with AVA on the label, but you have uh, AVAs such as on the western side, you might have Adelaida, Willow Creek, Templeton Gap. And then in the center, central area, you have more like El Pomar or Geneseo districts. And for on the east side, as you get kind of out toward the valley, you have things like Pastoral's Highlands District, the Creston District, and San Juan Creek. So we tend to get more rolling hills on the eastern side with sandy soils. So a lot of Cabernets run over there, Cabernet Merlot, things like that. And then in the western hills, that's the San Lucia mountain range. You're going to have a lot more mountainous terrain, which is going to have a lot more, a lot more calcareous soils, limestone, um, shale, things like that. So Linne Colotto wines. So basically you have the more brittle ones that kind of soak up that water and hold on to it. Whereas you have the well-draining soils in the Eastern side. So you'll see probably more of the Bordeaux varieties grown in to, to make a master notation on the Eastern side, even though there's some really killer Cabernets grown in, in Adelaide district. And then some of the more Rhone varietals, which Jason probably talked about last week with, you know, Syrah, Grenache, Moved, Grenache, all those wines all throughout the middle and Western parts of Paso Robles. And there's just so many cool microclimates here. I'm sure he talked about it, but one of the biggest things about here is the diurnal temperature swing. So it's going to be, you know, nineties, maybe up to a hundred in the summertime, but it's cooling off at night into the fifties and sixties. So it's really cool to let those grapes get a break at nighttime and really breathe and add to that complexity shut down a little bit. And then, it, and then the daytime ramps back up and they can do their ripening. So it's a cool, it's a cool area for that. I mean, obviously every region talks about their diurnal temperature swing, but it's really a hallmark here in Paso Robles. Yeah. And that bit of limestone is also rare for California as a whole, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Limestone is pretty rare in a lot of places in, in America and certainly in California, but we have that ribbon that runs right through three of the AVAs in Templeton Gap, Willow Creek and Adelaida. And that just adds some good acidity and complexity to the wines that are, that are grown there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even... 
we found some little pieces even in, in Creston and some of the vineyards when I used to yeah. go out with the Rebelies. He would always like kind of brag about how he would look around and I was always trying to find fossils. It was kind of kind Yeah, fun. no, it's definitely, I mean, there's less, but it certainly, because I mean, it was all an ancient seabed and so it washed out that way for sure. So there's definitely pockets of it throughout Paso Robles. A lot, a lot of different varieties that really thrive in Paso. We talked about the Rhone varieties, also talked about really exceptional quality and really good value Cabernet yeah. for California, especially when you're comparing to regions, maybe they're more known for Cab, like Napa. What do you see as like the biggest opportunity in terms of Paso reaching the marketplace? Is it some of these Rhone varieties or do you think that really exceptionally Exceptional quality, good value cab is the right. Yeah, I think both. It's a great question because I think for years we thought it was going to be Rhone, which would happen. But the Rhone movement never really took a national foothold in terms of like getting $10, $15, $20 Syrahs and GSMs. There are pockets of those that came out. But I think what's really driven past robo success has been with the national market's buying, which is that you know $15 to $25 Cabernet, right? So... That's where we excel. So there's going to be the great producers who've been doing it on a big scale, like Jay Lore, Hope Family, Justin, Dow, and some of those guys who they, they've got the volume to grow fruit, buy fruit, and make those wines that over deliver. And then they've also got wines in their portfolios that are also batting above their weight, which is like the $50 cab or the $75 cab, which in Napa or Sonoma might be $100 or $150. So it's always going to be that value. But it's in terms of like what you see on wide scale marketplace. You're going to see probably cab and, and cab blends. But I will say, I still think all of us here hold out hope that Roan is still going to have that moment on a lower, on a more massive level, because there's still going to be tons of places, right? So you guys know, because you've been here, but like on the West side where there's just these kind of wineries that just over deliver with their Roan and Roan blends. But a lot of it's like mailing list allocation or wine club wines that aren't going to be on a shelf in... Des Moines or, you know, Chicago or, or Texas, or they might be on a really cool kind of handcrafted wine shop or bottle shop, but not on a massive level. So. Yeah. I had mentioned Jim Madsen's The Farm out there when we were talking, had our last passive conversation. And yeah, that, I think that fits into that category. Extremely small production, high quality. You're not going to find it anywhere other than the allocation list. Yeah. That wine's, his wines are phenomenal. I love the farm wines. <laughs> They're fun. Yeah, I would say I hope the broader market comes around. Like there are a lot of people who drink Cote de Rhone and have no idea what's actually in it. So if they did, they would like some more of mm-hmm. these. And I think Syrah, for whatever reason, on the label still hasn't helped take off yet, but soon I feel. I yeah, feel and, G- and GSM obviously has had a, had, a, had a little bit more success. So those people who've done like nice GSMs and, and Jason over at Tablas Creek have done a phenomenal job just kind of. You know, with their Patalon series, so it's that kind of entry level wine that's between $35 and $55. Just again, just a phenomenal wine. They've got a bunch of the different Rhone varieties in there because they grow every Rhone variety out there in that property. And then, of course, so many people have kind of looked at them as kind of this beacon of like, well, what, what grows? Can we get some cuttings? Can we plant that here and make that work in our portfolio? Because just those wines age beautifully too. So even though we know we like to drink our wines young in America, those wines just sing when they're 10, 15, 20 years old. So Taking a business lens, kind of look on these things. What is the real difference between marketing for a single winery or even a craft brewery and trying to push a whole region, knowing that you have such a diverse kind of region to to market? Yeah, that's a great question. It took me a while to kind of figure that out because I would always be working on one one brand or one portfolio of wines. And now to suddenly have a couple hundred wineries to market, it's about telling the different stories and through messaging. And so for a while, it might be, well, we're going to talk about soil types and what grows well. So that way we can talk about 
you know, 10, 15, 20 wineries in a blog post or on a podcast or in, in one specific thing where we're sitting there talking about those things. Part of it's the find that the stories or we're talking about winemakers who came from other industries and suddenly they're successful in the wine industry. So maybe they came from tech or they came from the music industry, or maybe it's about the value wines, uh, Cabernets that are under you know, $35. And so then suddenly you're talking about that. The cool thing about it, I think as a marketer is it's always a, a changing target is that I, I can I actually get to talk about a ton of different wineries and they all are really tasty wines. So it isn't like I have, I'm, I'm having to avoid certain wineries because there's just, you know, there's even wineries here that are like only focus on Italian varietals or Spanish varietals. So it's finding that story. What's the messaging? And then can I weave that throughout a couple of the things that we do, which is we do a podcast as well. We do a blog called on Paso Uncorked. We do different things on our website where we're going to do feature articles. And then when we have trade media coming through town, what's that story we're going to tell them? You know, for a couple of years ago, it was like when the rosé thing exploded, we were like, great, we're doing rosé this morning and we're going to have all these different rosés from this ABA. And then maybe in the afternoon, we're going to talk about, you know, wines that are super obscure random varietals that we, you know, Blau Frankish or, you know, some random varietal that people are planting like Aglianico or just obscure varietals that are here in Paso. So it's just finding the messaging and then making it relevant to that consumer. So I don't know, I find it fun as a marketer, but you know, it, cause I think it's sometimes when you're out, when you are a winery and you're only marketing your five or seven skews like sometimes puts you in a box, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got to find that messaging too. I don't know. I think I view it as an advantage. I'm also an optimist. So nice. So we'll circle back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier. How did the pandemic affect Paso? I think it's interesting to your point of having I think all wine regions, nobody really thought about it, but everybody tried to stay top of mind as everybody was running to the grocery store and buying wine during the beginning of the pandemic and then nobody could travel. How do you keep a wine region kind of on people's maps when they're not? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, as it was everywhere, but I feel like the first two or three months, everything obviously kind of shut down and everyone just, everything was kind of closed, whether it was an office or a building or a factory, people were still able to, you know, wineries were still considered essentials of people in there making the wine and making sure things were on track. But then what used to be Paso's kind of our Achilles heel or kind of what used to hinder us is that we were three hours away from a major metropolis, like LA is three hours away, San Francisco is three hours away, Fresno is two and a half hours away. But what helped us during the pandemic was that we became suddenly a fun road trip of like, oh man, we're cooped up. We haven't left LA and three months, four months, let's go to Paso for the weekend. So it suddenly became this really great road trip destination of like three to four hours of that perfect road trip. Get in the car, listen to a couple albums. You're there. You barely got to stop for gas one time. And so people came here and was their way to get away because what the wineries could do was pivot immediately into outdoor tastings or tastings in massive open spaces, tasting out in the cellar, tasting out under the oak tree. So it became this cool area where in big cities, it was hard to do that because they were having to figure out how do they do parklets or how do they do outdoor spaces? Do they have a rooftop bar? Well, in Paso, like every winery for the most part, he has outdoor space. Even down in Tin City or downtown, you had your front patio or your front little parklet area. So it became this really cool place where everyone came, enjoyed, enjoyed Paso Robles to get away from kind of their little own personal, whatever that was lockdown situation they were in, in the bigger cities. And most wineries I know of, and this isn't like a dirty little secret, but had really good years in 2020 and really good years in 2021. 2022 was probably more flat, but that was always probably back to like 2019 numbers where we were on a slow, steady ascent up. But 
when people couldn't go to, you know, Hawaii or Europe or New York throughout the last couple of years, they certainly were hopping in their cars coming to Paso. And then on top of that is if they already were members of wine clubs, what did you try and do during the pandemic? Support those small businesses. So it was like, I'm already a member of these four wine clubs. I'm going to buy an extra case of wine. I'm home anyway. <laughs> we're drinking, you know, instead of drinking three nights a week, we're drinking four nights a week. So the wine clubs thrived. Unfortunately, obviously, there were certainly industries that were hit. If you sold a lot of your wine through the distribution channels and you were trying and you were doing a lot of premise, like one premise restaurant business, you were hurting because restaurants were not open for the most part and they certainly weren't selling a lot of wine. But if they could pivot and suddenly make those wines available in the off premise areas and they sell it through, you know, Vons, Kroger, Safeway, like Costco, like the places where people were stocking up on wine, they did really well <laughs> as well. So the DTC, the direct to consumer sales channel did well as a whole because people just wanted to support those cool winemakers who they've gotten to know over the years. That was our little success story of the pandemic in Paso Robles. Yeah. Do, do Paso producers as a whole export a lot of wines or... What, what's kind of some do yeah we, like said, we have about give or take two call it 200 220 wineries here in, in the region that are kind of active that are brick and mortar you know places and i we just had a, a wine institute group come through town with 15 export buyers who buy and sell wine in the export market and there's about about 15 to 20 wineries here in, in Paso Robles who do have an export market some are way bigger i mean if you're talking about j lore or hope family dow they've got a really good export market and they're selling you're, you know, one alone in Europe and in, in Asia and even down in, in South America and in Mexico. And then there's also little pockets of these cool wineries that are small, but they also have a really cool export market in Asia or in certain places in Germany because the owner went there, met these great people. And so they say they have that connection to do that. So some of the bigger wineries do that. And then some of the smaller wineries do as well. You're kind of like a sort of adjacent to the export market is like the secondary market. And wines that are changing hands not only in the U.S. but around the world. Yeah. A few Paso producers maybe come to mind, like Saxum and Laventor. Maybe you maybe could name one or two others. Do you think a, a broader secondary market, a larger secondary market, and concentration of Paso Robles wines there would help the Paso wine scene, or do you see that kind of secondary collector investor trading uh, as a long term hindrance? You know, I. I... Listen, I think that ultimately that probably helps because it's going to create buzz for those mm-hmm. those wineries. Or certainly those wineries already have that buzz, especially if you're talking about Saxum or Laventure or Turtle Rock or even like Patrimony is a newest label here that has just mm-hmm. this groundswell of support. There's not enough of that winding that goes around. So I think ultimately that helps when you're talking about the collectors, the buzz, people who have these really cool sellers or these cool shops where they can, they're going to get a small allocation of those things. That's going to help. I think it hurts when you don't have enough of the wineries that you can get your hands on. So you also want to have the ones that are just like that notch below where maybe you can get on that list pretty fast or you can get on and get some of those allocations. I know that was a hard thing in Napa for a while, in the nineties and early two thousands where it was like, Everyone wanted those certain wines, but there wasn't enough of them. And so then the secondary market came in. And I think there's arguments on both sides, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it certainly helps the, probably the value of those wines as they, as they're bought and sold multiple times, <laughs> Go, get, you know, and, and yeah. in really cool sellers. Right. I mean, Saxon's list, I think is five to seven years long right now, but you know, they, there are producers that are making wines from the same fruit, like for instance, from James Berry. Or from the same vineyards, right? James yep. Berry, uh, Booker Vineyards, 
Um, obviously, a number of producers making wines out of there. So I think that is a good point about, yeah, you can't maybe access these wines right away from Saxon and the like, but you can yeah. you know, get super close to it. Right? Yeah, that's been super helpful for those guys because I mean, ultimately, do we have how many cult wineries we have here in Paso? I mean, probably Saxon was by definition a cult winery because you almost can't mm-hmm. get those wines. But to your point, those all those guys you mentioned, you know, Lenny Cloto, Torin, Booker, law all the kind of around that they've all benefited because they're sourcing either from james berry or the vineyards that are right next to james berry and they all share you know winemaking kind of secrets or dna in terms of making those wines super fun and then we've got some really cool things i don't know if you guys are familiar with there's an event that happens here in paso every two years called hospice du rhone where hospice you know where Rhone producers from around the world come here and pour their wines and you know the first day is great because it's all the Passive producers were over there tasting this up from France and from South America, from South Africa. And then the second day, everyone's kind of doing a free for all of, of all the wines around the world. Why did that turn from a an annual festival to a biannual? Is that just a product of COVID as well? Well, it was, it was actually, we're going to do it before COVID even happened. But what the problem was, is that so much of the people who come here came from overseas. Mm-hmm. It kind of just became a hard, a hardship for all of a sudden every every may april and may you're budgeting to send you know whatever two three four people all the way over to this small town in, in central california so i think it's almost like a easier to do it every other year and then what they what the hospice Jerome group does during the years when they're not hosting it here in pastorables they do an event in blackberry farm in tennessee mm. well, they'll invite I think two or four wineries to kind of do this you know, food kind of culinary immersion. It's a much smaller event, but at least they still have programming each year. But I think it makes it easier, especially if you're going to try and get here from South America or South Africa, or even if you're coming down from Walla Walla or Sonoma, it's just easier every other year. But yeah, I missed it when it was every year, but it was a lot of work for the organizers as well. So Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was supposed to go... Was that just this year, Brady? Must have been just this year. It was. Um, yeah. It was. Yeah. 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 Then I ended up having to travel for work. So we actually gave away our tickets mm-hmm. to somebody in the Paso Wines Facebook group. So hopefully. Paso Wine Fanatics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a really active group and it is. super fans of our region. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. You mentioned producers from around the world coming to the region and it kind of brought to mind one of the distinct differences maybe between just say these sim- similar varieties being produced in France versus here in Paso. Paso typically, maybe they're going to be a little bit more exciting. You get that fruit earlier on in the bottle's life. Whereas maybe in France, you're going to want to wait a little bit longer in terms of the qualities that wine producers produces. What are some of your favorite wines from Paso to drink, you know, eight, 10, 12 plus years? I know you already mentioned yeah. um, the Tablas Creek. Yep. I'm sorry. I just can't re- retrieve that name today. But yeah, are there some others that you would add to that list that you like to see 10, 15 years out? Yeah. I mean, Tablas comes to mind first of all, just because of they have that French kind of DNA in how they make their wines. So that mm-hmm. Even though they taste great upon release, they do age really well. It's funny. I've had a couple of bottles recently from Epic Estate. And those wines are tasting really well. I've had a 14 last week. I had a 16 this week. And so even though there's only five and seven years old, but those wines have just... The tannin structure is still there. It's still got some brightness, but it's almost like the complexity has evolved and the finish is super long. Just And there's almost like a velvety... I, I, I think what happens here in Paso Robles is we have these really fine, silky tannins that... If the longer you wait, the more silky they, the more silky they become. So Epic is like that. Um, 
I actually tried an older law wine. And even though law isn't a massively new producer, but same thing in law, I had a 15 as well from them. And then ironically, on the cab side, you know, someone who's been here, we call him the godfather of you know, Pastor or the godfather of cab is like the Everly wines. And Gary Everly was still to this day will pull out wines from the, you know, late 80s or early 90s. And those wines are just phenomenal. They've got that, you know, that age, they've got the fruits not quite as bright anymore. And the new fruit isn't quite, as, you know, as bright. But the quality of the wine is just phenomenal in terms of just how, how it's wholly held together. So Cabernet, you know, from Everly. Who else says a wine's aged beautifully? Oh, have you ever had the Lecuvier wines? Those wines are awesome. I mean, he's got some really cool blends. Le Cuvier's, uh, as you're heading out Adelaide Road, before you get to, say, you know, before you get to Dow and Adelaide, on the right is Le Cuvier. John Munch started that winery back. He was making wine. He actually was one of the guys who Neil Collins of Tallish Street was working for, you know, 25 years ago. Oh, wow. I love the Le Cuvier wines. They're just, there's, there's a spice character to it, characteristic to them, almost like a eucalyptus and mint thing going on. I don't know if that's just the terroir where they grew that fruit there, but that's awesome. And, and last but not least is Adelaida. I mean, those wines just are, are mm-hmm. phenomenal. They're grown on really cool sites, high elevation sites, a lot of limestone in those soils and just beautiful wines. So nice. a lot, a lot of, I could talk all day about those wines, but there was somebody came to mind for sure. Do you have anything else on that one, Brady? I just feel like you were about to uh, say something. Just thinking about the names. Uh, I agree with the Epic stuff too. Yeah, I really like, enjoyed time out there. Enjoyed time at Everly as well. The last time we went. And Law, I didn't get to get to, but I feel like in some respect, they're one new label away from being able to break maybe into cult status, similar to maybe how like Patrimony, that project yeah, did. Yeah. I think, yeah, they could definitely be on the verge of something like that. Yeah, it's it's cool to see Patrimony's Ascent because even though they're a new brand, and uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's basically like Dow's kind of higher end label. It's it, it, mm-hmm. it, at a certain point, I think it was part of Dow, and now it's its own company, and they have their own estate that they've planted. But that's a wine that you know starts, I think, two seventy five. They've got a wine that's three seventy five. They've got a black label that's I don't know, it's a Magnum only, thousand dollars. But I was able to go up there and do some do a tasting with them recently. It's like those wines are incredible. They're big, they're opulent, but they're also got that really cool restraint and they're going to age beautifully as well so just and that's a wine that yeah like saxon you can't just go buy one around you've got to get in the list right. allocate well and and everything about those wines in terms of like the labeling and the packaging and the marketing and everything is in an effort to position it as this kind of like cult classic from the region but it's still like you said it's under 300 dollars, which yeah. is almost entry at the top level of napa for instance, you know what yeah, I mean? And that's, that's um, what they talk about. For yeah. us, we're like, oh, that's so expensive. But then you're like, well, okay, in the wine world, and you're talking about wines in Napa or from Burgundy or Bordeaux, like really, they're actually pretty affordable for what you're getting. <laughs> that's where we kind of talk about our tiers and kind of investment buckets. And we've kind of just used the terms emerging for regions right on the cusp, trending kind of regions that are kind of there and kind of moving up and then core for, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux and kind of the core investment portfolio type wines. What's interesting to me is, and this is another reason I like wines from like the Rhone Valley or even in Piemonte, aside from a few outliers, you can get the top wines from that region for like $300, $400. Whereas to your other points, you're paying for intro levels of some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something for people to keep an eye on, especially to your point in Paso. Some of these vineyards haven't even been producing or planted long enough. I mean, 
back 20 years ago. So now we're really just starting to see what some of those vines with some age on it could really produce as those vines are coming in, you know, either the vines themselves or the wines are coming into maturity. So I think exactly. Yeah. That's a good point because they're going to be coming up maturity and putting out even better fruit and better wines in the next few years. Right. That's what was interesting looking at the the farm project because I think their cab vines are like 50 to 60 years old, something like that. Wow. And they're some of the oldest out there. But if you, you know, there's certainly parts of the world where, you know, Australia, I was just in Greece, actually, you know, they had some old vines over there, hundred, like you're talking 115, 110 years. But in terms of California time, 60 is pretty impressive. 50 is pretty impressive. Yeah. Depending on what you're growing and the pedigree of the wine that it puts off. I mean, for some, the, the one vine vineyard that we have in Paso Robles, which your listeners probably are familiar with, which is the, the Ducey Vineyard, which Turley uses. And Turley's been sourcing from that for years. It was previously called the Pazenti or the Ducey. And those are the old Italian families who planted those back in pre-prohibition. So those are both 100-year-old vineyards that, you know, dry, you know, dry farmed, head trained. They're just like, that's the coolest thing is you it's ironically like right on the 101 freeway between here and Templeton. And you look at just right just past Target. It's this vineyard where, I mean, Ridge makes a vineyard designated off that just really cool, iconic vineyard that's right there on the 101 freeway. So where do you think, so Paso does get the nice cooling days, but I do know firsthand from the east side, it does get really warm. How do you see that and some of the water kind of aridness, I guess, of the area transitioning as climate change kind of has its effect. And yeah, the big and, thing has been rootstock on that one. Cause I mean, obviously, you know, vines for the most part, especially commercially produced vineyards need water as they've been replanting vineyards over the last five, 10 years, they're not doing stuff on their own route. They're doing drought tolerant rootstock. So the root, the roots that really can just take up as little amount of water as possible. And then they graft onto there what, you know, whether it be the cab or, or Merlot or Syrah, Grenache, whatever they're putting on there to just make sure they're using those really doubt tolerant rootstocks and then just deficit farming. So just giving it as little amount of water as possible to make those wines great to mature, to give it enough of a canopy to where it can, you know, get the photosynthesis and get that everything going to mature that fruit to, to make it a great wine, but not suddenly giving it so much water where you're getting eight, 10, 12 tons per acre, you know, it's really about getting it at that, you know, sweet spot, which is probably, you know, for Cabernet, probably around that, you know, five or six, you know, for the four to six tons per acre. So you don't want to stress it so much where you're getting no fruit, but you want to stress it enough where you get that great complexity. So for the water thing is real here. Certainly, we don't shy away from that. There's a lack of water. The Paso Basin is an overdraft, but right now there's a planting ordinance. So you can't plant over that. You know, so that's been happening for the last couple of years. And then if you want to plant anywhere kind of over there on the east side, you have to do what's called an offset credit. So you have to basically either buy land or take something that that is taking water offline, you know, like not no longer plant, you know, or farm your whatever it is, pistachios or olives or, you know, hay, you know, barley, wheat, whatever it is. And then in order to grow grapes, because you can't have you you basically have to like take something offline to grow grapes on the east side. And that's it's probably the responsible thing to do. There's a sustainable, there's a groundwater sustainability plan and taking place right now. It's been kind of going through all the work, the government channels through our county board of supervisors to make sure people are following the rules. And because we need to do that. And that's, that's led by a lot of people here who have vines in the ground, including the Lores and Justin and Dow people who they know that this industry has to be around for our kids and our grandkids and our grandkids kids. So it's funny times sometimes we're look, you know, the wine people looked at as like, big ag or big farm, but it's like they're farmers that they understand that this is a family business. And so we, we're not going to use it all up. So there's nothing there 
in the future for it to be a sustainable and viable industry in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, maybe maybe you can just touch on a little bit about the unique culture and the people, I guess, around Paso. It's one of the few places where I've been able to go drink high quality wine and also go to a rodeo. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was pretty cool. The only other one being Kunawar in the middle of nowhere in Australia. Okay. Yeah, they, they randomly have a rodeo. But the commonality, I guess you want to talk about like when you say they're farmers, a lot of time we say, you know, Burgundy's a farmer, but these are, this was really farmers first. There's like cattle farms and then there's vines and it's a really cool combination of yeah. atmosphere. Yeah, good point. I mean, the first thing I'll say is like the nice thing I think that's cool about Paso is like the tagline we use is authentic California. And it really is what people think of when they think of California. This isn't monolithic. This isn't like vineyards everywhere. There's, you know, there's still lots of things going on here from an agricultural point of view. There's horses, there's ag, people growing, you know, crops, there's wine grapes, there's olive oil. There's still less of now, but certainly there's still walnuts and some nut farms out here. So there's a lot of different things being grown. And over the years, certainly way more that has become pastoral, has become pastoral uh, grapes and, and wine grapes, but it still has this really cool camaraderie feel to it. I mean, this, this aspect of community where everyone gets along and a lot of them have horses and cattle still, and they've grown and become part of the wine industry alongside the people who come here and said, Hey, I'm going to make a, you know, a pastoral wine that is a, you know, 95 point to hundred point wine every year. So you've got the people who come here to make, and, and grow wine grapes and make that their, their hobby. I mean, their, their business along with people who've transformed their business from say, you know, whatever was cattle or almonds or alfalfa into grapes and they get together and there's mid the mid-state fair every summer is one of the greatest fairs ever. I saw Willie Nelson when I was there, you know, 25 years ago, I've seen everyone from everyone from Toby Keith to Justin Bieber played there a couple of years ago. I mean, it's one of those fairs where Garth Brooks played a couple of years ago. So that's massive. There's a rodeo. There's an auction where you can go sell your your lambs, your pigs, your cattle. So it's still definitely an ag town and a farm town. And there's still, you know, there's the Pine Street Saloon, which is the great, you know, bar we all end up afterward. After we've had these great fancy wine dinners, you go in there and you can get your Coors Light or your 805 and have a great time and talk to people who live in Paso Robles and call it home. So it's a wine region that has a lot of authenticity in terms of the people live here, they work here. There's not a lot of these billionaire owners who just come in, roll, start a winery and leave. Most of the, for the most part, our wineries here are owner operated and they're, you know, on the tractor, they're on the forklift and they're in the tasting room. Now, is there less of that? Certainly. I mean, we've gotten over, we have over, over 200 wineries here, but still so many of those wineries are small. 80% of the wineries we have in our association make less than 5,000 cases. So if you think about that, like eight out of 10 people are making a small amount of wine, all those hats at a winery. Yeah. Make, making small amounts of wine, multiple or, you know, several hundred wineries, all of those funds, the money is staying there in the community being yeah. reinvested. And I think that's, you know, I was really impressed when I went just how not just developed, but really thoughtfully and well-developed uh, like the Midtown area is, especially all the restaurants and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that it's really benefited from having a lot of small wineries because those funds stay, like you said, instead of going off yeah. you know, to some investor who doesn't live there. And certainly there's other things that have come about because of the wine industry, which we're dealing with as a community and everyone has to do too. And that's like, suddenly you've got, you know, higher price homes, you've got nicer restaurants, but there's also more of a tax base. So you have also have nicer roads, you know, better schools, newer fire trucks. So it's that yin and yang that I, I think every industry goes through in terms of as they become more and more popular, you've got more people coming to town, say Thursday through Sunday, 
But it's a matter of just, you know, making sure that we're building for the future, keeping downtown super nice, super cool. But also, are we still doing things for the locals and still doing really cool give backs and being part of the community and giving money away to all the local schools, local nonprofits. And that's the thing sometimes people forget is that like, yeah, we might be a tourist town, but like whether whether you work at a boutique downtown or a nice restaurant or you pour wine or you work at a tractor shop, all that supports the tourism industry of people who are coming here to support Paso wines. And so that's been really cool to see. And it's still something we need to work on as we evolve as a tourist destination, because we certainly want to make sure that people have affordable place to live, whether it be a house, apartment, <laughs> and they're not driving 30 to 60 miles just to have that. Nice. Well, on that note of evolution and evolving, where do you see Paso going in the next five years? What do you think, see the cool developments being? Yeah. Well, we've been on a, on a meteoric rise the last, I'd say, three to five, as you guys can attest to. And I, I still see that happening. I think the next three to five years is, is really about growth. And I think we've seen is more of the California wine industry making investments in Paso Robles. I look at that as a good thing. I mean, Constellation came in recently and they partnered with Eric Jensen over at Booker. There's been some Gallo acquisitions. There's been Winex. They've come in and they bought Chronic Sellers. We've got bigger producers who do really good things in our community. That includes the Ribley family with what they're doing, includes the Lore family, includes the Hope family. So you've got bigger players who understand this isn't just a kind of a little small mom and pop operation. They maybe have wineries, not only in Paso Robles, but in other places, whether it be Monterey, Oregon, down south in Santa Barbara. And I think probably part of that is, is scaling up their operations. You probably still continue to see a lot more passable wines in the wholesale market. So you're still going to see a lot of those. I think you're going to see a lot of wine lists around the country, probably add sections for passables, whether that be if you're walking into a HEB in Texas, or you're working, you're walking into a Whole Foods in in New York, you're going to see a lot more pastorables wines on those shelves. I'm still going to be, I think you're going to have that section that's that values that value under $25, $35. But I think you're also going to see some of the really spectacular stuff make out here as well as we scale up. So you're still going to see some of these producers who are making great wines for their call it their, you know, wine clubs or allocation lists, get out there to what you guys are doing, where people are seeing those, you're seeing those buying into traded. You might see them on really cool auction lots. You might see them in auctions. And you certainly might see them on some of the high-end restaurants that you go to around the world. So you were talking about wines like maybe Austin Hope Cabernet or Pablo's Creek's high-end wines, Dow Patrimony, where those folks know that those wines can be sold in whether, you know, whether it's a steakhouse in Paso Robles or a fine dining in Hong Kong. You're going to see past rebels on those wines. Awesome. And then like to finish up with that, you still have a lot of more folks from Napa coming down here and I'm talking about producers. And again, that's not a bad thing. That's just figuring out what that looks like. Are they going to become part of the community and how they're going to be involved? That's going to be something that Paso is going to have to navigate over the next few years as we look at can you, how much can you continue to plant here and what kind of varieties are we going to be known for and things like that. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That's happening in Burgundy as producers are going down the Maconay and down to Beaujolais and then same with like Bordeaux producers looking to South America. So that's just a credit to the quality of the wine yeah. you guys are producing and the fruit there that people are coming down. So yeah. um, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Brady, do you have anything else before I wrap it up here? Yeah, that's it. Thanks a lot, Joel. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for shining a light on on that place. I think it's an, yeah, a great region for people to get exposed to really high quality wine. For the first time. It, yeah. 
Thank you. No, I appreciate it. It's all everything I've talked about or we do is on PasoWine.com. So if they want to check out, you know, Paso Wine, how we talk about our AVAs, our history, you can track what our different vintages look like, has all of our producers are listed on there. And then we do a podcast as well called Where Wine Takes You. We just have on different personalities throughout the year and talking about how they got into wine, what they do, and what the future of Pastorables looks like as well. So fun to be on with you guys. Thank you so much. All right. So we are now here with Megan O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I think our listeners may have remembered the last episode I said in my past life, I worked for a winery that had vineyards in Paso and Monterey. And now I'm also going to say my way past life was in, in branding and marketing. And that was actually my master's degree. So I'm really excited to have Megan on who is a treasury wine estates and is a brand director and oversees multiple brands. So we're excited to hear about your brands as well as your background, kind of how you went from environmental studies at Yale to wine branding. I did. Yeah, it was kind of a long and winding road that got me into marketing for wine, but I'll try to keep it short. So let's see. So I majored in environmental studies in college because no surprise, I'm passionate about conservation and sustainability. And I was considering a couple different career paths. I was pre-vet, actually. I was looking at the forestry school for a minute. But my real deep love is for writing. And so that was my concentration in school. So I studied a lot of nature writers like John McPhee and Peter Matheson and John Muir, just gorgeous authors. And then I did some magazine work at The New Yorker and at Slate. And I just kept pursuing that path. But I'm a very practical person at heart. And so for me, a career in writing meant moving into the tech sector. I was in San Francisco at the time. So I took a position at Google and I was a, a writer for them, which was kind of a mix between technical and marketing writing. And so I kind of just stumbled into marketing through the writing pathway. But once I was there, I said, marketing's kind of cool. It's like balance of romance, of creativity and writing. But then you also have this practicality and security of the business end, which is a really good fit for my personality. And so I knew I wanted to stay in marketing, but not in tech. I wanted to be in wine, probably for a lot of the same reasons you and your listeners are involved in wine now is it's just the best. It gives you this this amazing lens on the world. It shows you art and history and culture and food and agriculture and sustainability. And so I was just totally fascinated by wine and still am. So I said, let's get into wine marketing. How do you do that? I had no idea. Let's go to business school. It's kind of what you do when you don't know how to get to that next step in your career. And I went to Wharton, which is a very financy type school, not a marketing type school. So actually, it wasn't probably the best school to go to get into wine, but I got a really good finance education, which came in handy. And then I was eventually able to get a job in wine marketing out of school. But I did have to do six months. I had to carry a second job at wine retail at Sherry Lehman in Manhattan for six months on top of my day job to get some wine companies to talk to me. So the expensive MBA really did not move the needle for them. It was the retail job at Sherry Lehman selling lots of Burgundy and Bordeaux, which was a whole other story. It's interesting because I had a writing degree in college, writing and philosophy, and it came out and was like, you can be a technical writer or a copywriter. And I realized that there are only like 10 companies that hire actual professional writers, right? This is a luxury. Google maybe is one of them that can afford to hire a full-time writer. 
And then I did the same. I was in retail before finding my way to wine. Not it wasn't wine retail, but it was like specialty retail. And maybe that's the path. If you want to get into wine, get a writing degree and work in retail. Do you know what? Maybe we are on to something here. I think <laughs> I, I thought it was very unique here, but I think you're right. So I started at Winebow, really cool importer. I was managing their Iberian portfolios of Spain and Portugal. And then I moved to Deutsch Family Wine and Spirits. And now I'm at Treasury. It's 12, 15 years later since I started in wine and I managed their luxury portfolio there. And then the kind of last bit about my path here is I love wine education. I know you guys do too. So I finished my WSET coursework a few years ago. I started the Master of Wine program, which I know you guys have some incredible MWs over at Vent pass through level one. We'll see what the future holds. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. I'll probably have to ask you some questions later in this podcast and offline on that because Brady was just joking in our last episode that I'm on my like 40 year trek to try to get towards the desert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's accurate. <laughs> I'm on yeah. a 40-year trek to get to WSET 3, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? 3 is not 3 is no joke. So, yeah. So, let's dive in a little bit about the portfolio you work on. My also kind of wine route, if we're all just talking about our backgrounds. I went from... My master's was in branding. So, I did go the right route for advertising. But it turns out I wanted to be in wine. So, it wasn't that helpful. So, while I was working at an agency in New York, I passed the first couple levels of the quartermaster sommelier exams which then led me to Australia because I wanted to work in vintage. So all roads kind of end up leading through or around Australia somehow. So, so on that note, let's talk about some of the brands that Treasury has in their portfolio, originally an Australian company and now expanded to hold brands around the world. Yes, you're absolutely right. So they might be best known for Penfolds. And I know that you have offered up a Grange vertical in the past. So you're familiar with that brand. But we're also really important in Napa. We're one of the largest growers there. And I manage four Napa brands for Treasury. So that's Stag's Leaf Winery, Bolu Vineyard, Behringer, and Etude. Nice. So before we go too much further, can you explain to me the difference between the two stag sleeps, like where the apostrophe goes and which <laughs> one's a <the> good one? <laughs> yeah, I do love grammar. So this is a fun topic for me. So stag, the stag sleep winery, the one that I manage, has the apostrophe outside the S, like a plural possessive. Whereas stag sleep wine cellars, which is owned by Chateau Saint-Michel, has the apostrophe on the left. So it's a singular possessive. There was a huge lawsuit about this a while back. So we probably all know the story. So stag sleep wine cellars, the one for Chateau Saint-Michel, they're the ones that won the Judgment of Paris in 76. Stag sleep winery is an older label or organization. We date back over 100 years. And we were really instrumental in pioneering the stag sleep district ABA. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. And I guess, can you cover off, I guess, where the other three are? Because I guess Beaulieu is more down towards Rutherford a little bit, I think. I drove by it recently. So that's, it was on my way. <laughs> yeah. So we're really close to the Rutherford Grill, which is handy because you can get a great lunch there. But yes, we are a Rutherford brand. We actually are the guys behind the idea of Rutherford dust and the term Rutherford dust. Oh, nice. We, right. We have Andre Chelischeff and George De La Torre in our history. Behringer is in St. Helena and even in Napa since 1876. But we also have a big footprint in Knights Valley, which is a very cool AVA that's in Sonoma, but it's right on the border of Napa. So it almost straddles the two. 
And then a toot is actually, I, I hesitated before calling a toot a Napa winery. So the winery is in Napa. The vineyards are in Carneros on the Sonoma side of Carneros, but not far from Napa. So mm. it's a complicated one. <laughs> awesome. yeah, there's th- three kind of different brand related idiosyncrasies there, right? Like there's the Stagsley thing with the apostrophes. And I'm sure navigating that in your branding is has been interesting probably over the years. There's the BV component. Like that's how I know the vineyard as BV or the winery as BV. And then the kind of confusion of place with it too. What's it like navigating some of those maybe challenges in branding between the different brands? You know, it's such a good call. There's a lot of minutia involved in wine. I mean, that's partly why we like it, right? We like baseball for the statistics. We like wine for the minutia. So a lot of us have a bottomless appetite for these kinds Mm -hmm. of details. And it just becomes a fun talking point when you're talking to wine geeks. And I use that phrase with a lot of affection. What's interesting though, is that when you're talking about these brands on a larger level and you're trying to appeal more broadly to people, we tend to avoid this minutia altogether because it can kind of be distracting. It's like little details that aren't really about the mission, the core of the brand. So we've been moving away a little bit from focusing too much on them. Yeah. So like in my past time, I worked for an Australian producer for a little bit. And then like I was saying, these Paso and Monterey producer, which we had six different brands. It It is interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the balance that you try to strike in like building an actual brand, the feelings and the kind of ideas you want to evoke around the brand versus wine is so much talking about like what's in the bottle. How do you separate the two and really kind of build a brand on its own you know, legs rather than just the wine itself? I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's the heart of my job. And it's mm-hmm. something I think the wine industry is still figuring out or a little bit behind the rest of the world. The reason I think is that Wine is so incredibly fragmented. I mean, you go into the grocery store and what other shelf has 300 brands to pick from, which is basically all the same thing, right? Fermented grape juice. And so because there's so many brands and each brand is fairly small compared to say like any other category, any other beverage, not every brand gets the luxury of making a strong consumer statement. Sometimes you get stuck in this trade marketing limbo where really you're only talking to other wine people because you need them to sell that wine to consumers. So we call them gatekeepers, right? Sommeliers, buyers, even your own salespeople. So if you go into a fine wine shop, for example, and not a grocery store, a lot of the wines there, those are really traditional fine wines where it's all about the juice, the vineyards, the winemaker, and the story that buyer, that that steward or salesperson in the store can then tell to a consumer. There's only a handful of wines that have the luxury of doing real consumer marketing and kind of transcending the wine category. And those are some of the ones you start seeing on the grocery store shelf. And I'm very lucky because I work with four of them. And so my job is essentially maintaining a parallel path is I have my path where I'm talking to my connoisseurs, my wine geeks, we're talking about vineyard, minutia, style winemaking. But then I'm also talking to uh, the broader winemaking or wine consuming populace out there, people that love wine, but maybe they don't want to talk about winemaking and vineyards for half the day and they're interested in something else. And that's when you start finding a story in the wine. But the trick is making sure they mesh together. If you try to make something up that does not make sense for your brand, 
people see through you right away. You need to ground everything in reality and authenticity for your brand. Yeah. So how does that translate? Like I, I've seen, I think it's it's Stag Sleep. I'm looking it up right now. It has more of like some of this animated kind of branding essence. And it kind of, it's evocative of kind of the feeling you get or when you're consuming it a little bit more. How do you separate that and start trying to message either... I guess both digitally and like even at point of sale, maybe some sort of display or something. Like how do you evoke non-wine notes, I guess? I'm really happy you picked up on the Stag Sleep campaign because that was a really big step for us is we're making a big effort to start speaking in non-traditional wine language about our brands. And Stag Sleep was the first one that we made a really big step for. And so when I came up with that campaign just two years ago, and we thought a lot about, okay, so we know some people love Stag Sleep because they like the story of the Stag Sleep district. Maybe they like the apostrophe story. They like the more restrained pro- profile, the more European style profile. But why does everyone else like it? This wine is very popular. Not everyone likes it for that reason. And so we did a little consumer research, did a lot of just chatting with Luckily, I have a lot of friends that love the brands and just some informal focus groups with them. Pretty much across the board, what people love about Stag Sleep Winery is the stag. It's the animal. It's what's on the label and the name. We have this beautiful origin story about a mythical stag that could be seen in the shadows leaping through the palisades, never being caught by hunters. And it evokes all of this, all of these feelings about freedom and grace and beauty and power. There's this I'm geek out for one second because this goes back to my major in college, actually. But there's this concept of charismatic megafauna, big, beautiful animals that people love and relate to. And they put them on their flags and make stories about them. And we're really lucky we have a stag at the core of our brand. And so we said, let's focus on him. Let's bring him to life. Let's let him run around. And we had a lot of success with this campaign. We introduced it about 18 months ago. Our sales just took off. We blew through our forecast. We beat category. Right now, our biggest problem actually is staying in stock. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I know retailers love that when you're out of stock and you have a great campaign going. Um, But yeah, yeah, I I really thought I I saw a few of those and I think I was actually served a few natively, maybe after I looked up, but I really did like it because it came across more of the essence and the ideas behind it. And it reminded me more of something you may see for like a packaged good, even like a Coke or something that had that idea with it. And you don't really get that a lot with most wines. So I thought, I thought that was really interesting. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. We'll say, how does that brings me to kind of my other main question here is like when something's more traditional in essence or something I think of more like the Bailu or how do you say oh, that? Uh, Bolu. 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 Yeah. BV. Yeah, I know. That's why people say Well, that's why people say BV. But to me, that BV looks a little bit more traditional. And then you have a name that, like, you know, is harder to say. How do you do something like that when it doesn't have that charismatic megafauna story? I really like that term, by the way. I don't think I got 100% right. But no, you did. I love it too. Charismatic megafauna. They're going to tease me later at the office for throwing that down, but I think it's a cool concept. (laughs) Okay. So BV, I think, is actually a really cool. Uh, foil to Stacks and Winery. And the reason, just like you said, it's a more traditional brand. There's, you know, a French sound to the name. 
it's a big brand for us. It's popular. People love it. And so we're trying to do something similar and push beyond these normal constraints of of language that you use about wine. So what else besides the vineyard and the history can we talk about? And what kept coming to me is like reclaiming the idea that BV is an old traditional brand. That's kind of the real talk or like the criticism that people sometimes give about BV. They're like, oh, I don't know. It's been around forever. I think I saw my dad drink it once. Maybe my grandpa drank it once. I don't know if it's for me. And so the core of the biggest lesson I've learned in marketing is you cannot ignore reality. You have to embrace the reality of your brand and just be authentic and like acknowledge the world around you. So I was thinking, huh, if some people are thinking this about BV, like let's lean into it. Let's lean into the fact that BV has been here for a hundred years. It's been here for the moon landing. It's been here for Kent, you know, Camelot. It's been here for, for every moment in American history. It's like the Forrest Gump of America, maybe. Yes, your grandpa probably did drink it. But what is more authentic than that, than something that's been around forever and that has changed and weathered this past century? And so we're actually working on this campaign right now. It's called BV Was There. And it's putting BV in all of these iconic moments from the past century. And the beauty is that the, the brand is evolving so rapidly now. It's like still at the forefront of winemaking. We have this incredible young winemaker, Trevor Darling. He just got a huge write-up in Spectator, which is really awesome. And so once people shake themselves up a little bit and look at the brand again, they realize, yeah, it's been here for a hundred years, but it's not going anywhere. It's still leading the way. I like the continuity between the labels with that brand because it feels like you have something really premium and it is premium at $33. But I mean, you know, you have bottles here in the 30s range and up into 60, but then also your Georges Latour in the 1150 range, but the labels are very similar. And so it feels like it is something exciting that you're bringing to the table and is kind of premium at all the price levels, which, you know, I think for me, when I was like starting out into wine, I didn't really know the difference between like quality here or there. Like that resonated with me as a consumer that like, oh, this is premium. This maybe looks traditional, but I think that's premium in wine. Traditional is premium. <laughs> I know so yeah. many, so many of these words, right? But no, thank you for that. And I think the pack is really intentional. And I think that $35, $40 Napa Valley cab is probably the best deal on the shelf that you're going to find. Mm-hmm. I mean, like how much are Napa cabs these days? Yeah, great yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, I also think that, and the main, re- like one of the main reasons we wanted to have this episode is like, how do, how do people brand specific wines? How do regions brand themselves? Because when you think about it, and I don't think our consumers really think about it, it's like, Bordeaux itself is a brand. You know, there's a reason why so many wines just put Bordeaux instead of their winery name on on their labels because they can't because the AOC has a lot of power or the top chateau. You know, if you put Mouton Rothschild on something, you know, you're going to be good to go. And it's interesting that like only one of those first growths actually changed their label on a you know annual basis because otherwise some of them like DRCs or even I mean that's going to Burgundy, but like the Bordeaux labels are so iconic that. It's interesting how in America, we are still working on establishing that tradition and trying to straddle the line between old fashioned and becoming icons at the same time. Yeah, it's so true. And some of those old fashioned labels, think about a traditional German label, for example, right? It's so detailed. It's so informative, also so confusing, but that's almost a benefit sometimes. Like people love a little bit of mystery, you know, like what the heck does this mean? And so you do have to kind of put a stake in the ground and say, do you want to go for clarity and emotional resonance, or do you want to go for some maybe traditional 
prestige when it comes to wine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about both sides because in the new world, especially no matter how good your wine is, it's kind of useless unless people actually get to drink it and then start looking and seeking it out. So I think the concept of, you know, you don't have the luxury of hundreds of years of gaining a reputation. So it's really interesting to kind of look at it through this realm. Something Brady always likes to touch on is Napa and the qualities coming from Napa. And it kind of has this stigma of a certain one type of wine being like a Napa cab. Can you talk about how you guys kind of combat that, especially with four wines that are from what would be from an outside point of view, considered in the same area, but that are clearly distinct in their profile? No, it's such a good question. I was listening to Lisa Prati Brown on a recent episode of yours, and I love how she talked about Napa, how there is a lot more nuance in this region. And I think increasingly so, which I'm really hoping people start to see and taste as they continue drinking Napa. So for us, when you manage foreign Napa brands, you do not have the luxury of being generic or vague because they're all swimming in the same pool, right? So each of them needs their own lane. And I'm lucky because just naturally through history and also through efforts, we have really clear lanes for each of these brands. And so BB is about Rutherford. It's about Rutherford dust. Easy, right? For Behringer, our Napa wine, the real icon there is our private reserve Cabernet. Cabernet. That's about mountain vineyards. That's like Howell Mountain, for example. So we're talking structure. We're talking minerality, ageability. Done. Stags Leap Winery, we're talking about the Stags Leap District, our estate vineyards there. Our style from the beginning has been to pick early, we're restrained, we're elegant. There we go. We also are known for Petite Syrah, which is a fun standout. And then fourth, we have a two. We're all about Carneros. Carneros is its own animal. Our Grace Benoit Ranch Estate is 40 years old. It is so unique. Even that is a gem within Carneros. And that's Pinot Noir led. So that's a whole different territory as well. But so once you start breaking it down that way, they all feel so different to me. But I know on the surface, it's oh, four and a half of brands, like that feels so similar, but it's, it's amazing how different they can be. And how important is, I mean, we know in Napa, for instance, like Tokalone transcends Napa Valley as mm-hmm. like, you know, in terms of naming. Stag Sleep sort of, I think, does the same, Stag Sleep District. Do you find that's the same with like Rutherford for your, maybe your BB label and yeah, how many of these different either is it the vineyard level, the di- like district and sub-AVA level? Like what is it that's starting to transcend Napa Valley more? And what are you leaning into in terms of drawing those things out? You know, it's a good question. I, I think Rutherford, you can count among that company. And I wish there were more. I don't think we're quite there yet. The one I am really excited to see to see have a stronger identity is Knights Valley that AVA I mentioned before. Behringer basically founded Knights Valley back in the 70s and were the, by far the biggest farmer there today. So it's kind of like a secret. We've never talked about it. We have this gorgeous plot of Cabernet that just it has its own AVA that never has created an identity. So it's this like huge opportunity. What do we want Knights Valley to stand for? So I would love in 20 years of Knights Valley was as well known as Rutherford. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I actually unknowingly just drove through Knights Valley. That makes sense. It is out there. There is nothing out there, right? <laughs> it's like yeah. the bathroom in Carneros because there's nothing for 30 miles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was really pretty though. I took a long way because I wanted to drive, but it turns out it's not the best for a passenger going around windy roads in a <laughs> decently yeah. fast car. But yeah, so I, I guess my the crux of my other question, I understand 
that you can lean on some of those differentiators, but how do you stand out, I guess, from those other Napa wines, or I guess how taking a step back, it's not necessarily comparing yourself in that peer group, but like through your marketing, either through the stag or some of the other things, how do you convey the quality of the wine with like breaking some of like, how do you reach non Napa drinkers with your wine and saying like, you don't, you have a stigma about Napa. How am I going to reach you with this messaging? Oh, so you're talking about people that think Napa is one note and maybe they are interested in, I don't know, Cabernet mm-hmm. from Chile or Argentina or somewhere else. And how or, do you yeah, or they have real, real wine, you know, real wine people drink Bordeaux and Burgundy. You know, I've moved on from Napa. That's like entry level, one note, that kind of thing. Got it. So how do we bring them back? Do you know what? It's a it was a it's a big challenge. I don't honestly know if it's a huge priority for us. Is if you are a huge wine fan and you've decided that you're interested in other regions, like God bless. But what I'm hoping happens is people keep an open mind. You know, they see us at all the same events that all these other regions are at. They give it a sh- they give it a shot, and they get surprised. I feel like surprising someone is the biggest thing you can do. But it has to be liquid to lips. If you're a real wine geek, it's you're going to just rely on your palate. I don't think marketing is going to get you. <laughs> yeah. So how, where do you see the biggest opportunity? Is it more trying to steal drinkers who may drink a similar wine? Like maybe they're in the Malbec train and they want to upgrade or try a different grape? Or is it current, you know, cab lovers who you might be able to convert over to Napa or other Napa lovers that you could poach from other people? So all the opportunity for us is to start aging down is a lot of these heritage brands are consumer based. They are, you know, older Gen X, early boomer, and they're wonderful, loyal consumers. They're the core of of our brands and we love them, of course, but we have to keep evolving. So we're appealing to that next generation of wine drinker and to them, the markers they like for prestige and for communicating with their peer group are different than the prior generation. And so they're interested more in storytelling and what a brand stands for and authenticity. They don't necessarily want the same thing, like the same kind of prestige marker that their parents maybe brought to dinner. And so that's where storytelling comes in. And that's where we're putting a lot of our focus. Nice. And I think that's actually a core kind of component of why I'm passionate on the vent side of things is we get to tell these stories of these great chateau and kind of bring them in a touch point to people, especially some of these younger, potentially like retail investors who we may be their first touch point to wine. We get to introduce them and hopefully gain an appreciation. Whereas, you know, before everybody either had their parents or they were looking up to these wines as icons that they wanted to drink. Well, it's like now you can still kind of support them, even though they might be too expensive, but appreciate the history and you were saying the art behind them. Mm-hmm. But I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think how are you, are there certain ways you're doing that? Is that like a channel choice or is that, you know, your stags leap the whole campaign or like, how are you reaching these folks? No, sure. You know, the things we were talking about before with outside of your accolades, your prestige, your vineyards, what's authentic and interesting about you and telling that story, but the way you do it is really important, right? So digital is huge. Every wine marketer is going to talk to you about digital. You may have run across our Living Wine Labels platform or Web AR platform for 19 Crimes. So 19 Crimes is not a luxury Napa brand, but it's, I think, a real bellwether for where the industry is going. It is a huge innovator. And so 19 Crimes was the first brand 
to launch WebAR, our first wine brand to use WebAR. They launched their platform about six years ago. It's called Living Wine Labels. You hold your phone in front of the bottle and basically the label comes to life and the guy on the label starts talking to you, tells you his story. It's really very cool. And so it was hugely successful. I mean, the brand just shot into the million case mark immediately. We're one of the hugest, the biggest brands in the country right now. And just think about how many people have used this technology. But the trick is not every brand can use it in the same way. Is a lot of competitors started using it. Some had a great experience. Others did not. We even dabbled with using it with a couple other brands. And we pretty quickly backed off because we could see it was not having the same effect that it had on 19 crimes. Like WebAR needs a story that is fun, quick, visual, pithy, like not too serious. And that works for 19 crimes. It might not work for BB, right? And so if you're going to spend a lot of money trying to do it there if it's not going to work. Now, I think though there is a place for WebAR with luxury wine. I'm actually working on a project right now. I'm hoping to get out next year, which I think is going to be gorgeous. But I think wine could stand to look at other luxury categories to figure out how to do that. So we look at fashion a lot. We look at spirits actually is, is a bit ahead of wine, I think. And so we get a lot of inspiration there. That makes a lot of sense. So are these going to be more, I guess, storytelling, but are they trying to bring you to that sense of place or kind of drive home these channels or I mean, these notes that you're trying to touch on or I guess I'm trying to envision what an immersive experience to me could kind of be like without giving too much away. Obviously, I know it's not out yet. No, I know. It kind of makes your head spin because you're like, what would that even look like for a luxury brand? I mean, do we try to make like the tasting notes come to life? Do we want to see blackberries dancing around in front of her front of her eyes? Maybe. I mean, I don't think so personally, but that's one way of going about it. You could try to make the vineyards come to life, or maybe the story, the history. It's really, this is when you start getting into your marketing fundamentals. What's the statement? Like, What's the brand statement, the positioning for your brand? And that's where you want to put your focus. How has the pandemic changed the way you reach folks, including some of these older folks who may now be used to actually using like a QR tag, whereas before you, they'd have no idea what that was before the pandemic. I know we are thrilled that all the restaurants put QR codes on their menus. We've been trying to use QR codes for like a decade <laughs> just they weren't taking off. Mm-hmm. So that was the silver lining for us from COVID. So yeah, lots of QR codes, always driving back to digital. And honestly, it's content is king is People get bored quickly. So you are the, the content beast, the appetite on this beast is bottomless. So you're constantly creating new content. What's great is that it's like a whole new industry for these young, hungry, creative content creators. There's just so much work out there for them. And everyone has this appetite for being courageous and taking risks and standing out. So I'm loving the content coming out these days. What do you see kind of on the like influence side? What do you see as the influence or the impact that the investment in secondary market space has on the market, maybe generally or broadly? I know not all of the wines in your, you know, within your brands, you know, trade super actively on the secondary market, which isn't a bad thing. How do you think about the secondary trading market and the investment market in relation to brand management? I think Is it's positive. A- I mean, honestly, I'm I'm struggling to find a downside apart from the black market, obviously, (laughs) but the secondary market is a great thing. I mean, I think the reason we all love wine is that it's more than a beverage, right? Like a lot of wines are cheap and cheerful. Let's drink them today and have a party. And, you know, I love those wines, God bless, but 
there's a, an important section of the industry where it's about more than the liquid. It's about the story, the history, and yeah, the prestige and the business and the dollars. And if that brings more eyeballs and new perspectives to the industry that sees it as what it is, which to me, I think it's like the art world. Then I say all the better. So I mean, I, I love what you guys are doing, for example. I think it's only a benefit. Yeah, I think that's why we highlight, you know, every kind of corner of the industry, even coming from, you know, the investment side here. You know, we've spoken with these kind of cult wine producers for sure on our podcast and, you know, speaking with someone like Jane Anson or Lisa Prati Brown, who swims in those waters as well uh, in some of their work. But it's really like every corner of the wine market is telling a story. And I think all of those things like the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, I think the investment market can be good for the consumer brands as well. Yeah. Well, I also think there's something that's interesting. Like I know a lot of wines today are made to be drank in two to three years, but for some of those higher caliber wines, which include, you know, some of yours, they do benefit from this, that extended aging. And I think that is being viewed a little bit more now as something from the past or that's something that older people used to do or like having a wine cellar and aging wines. Cause everybody's more about like immediacy nowadays. So I also think there's a role in the secondary and investment market to properly store and age wines. And then those will be available down the line as well. Have you seen any efforts for you guys to try to, you know, do verticals or any interest in back vintage from some of your consumers? Yeah, no, and that's such a good call. I mean, there is no greater joy than finding an old bottle of wine that's been well-preserved. Like I used to, when I was living in Manhattan, I'd go to Acre Merrill and Condit and just snap up whatever like affordable auction item I could find on the shelf that they picked up at some auction. And so anyone who's reliably aging wine for consumers, yeah, standing ovation for them. And yes, we do keep libraries. We, especially my Behringer Private Reserve Cabernet, because it's so much from mountain fruit. Oh my God, it ages just so gorgeously. And so it's my favorite day when I get to open something from the 80s, 70s, even 60s. And we break those out for, um, for, for events, for sure. We do, we sell vertical packs, but only recent verticals. I would love to figure out a way to keep bigger libraries so we could more widely offer far back vintages. Yeah. Every time someone mentions aging mountain fruit Napa cab, I, my credit card bill goes up because it's just confirmation bias for the trend that I'm in right now. I know, I know. And I just think it also just puts Napa in such a great light. Like you were mentioning before, some people that drink a lot of wine, they're drinking Bordeaux Burgundy, maybe raise an eyebrow at Napa, but drink something with some age on it and you see what they're about. Yeah. Nice. Brady, do you want to ask your... Brady's been on a range of asking people questions about what they're drinking but narrowing their options to like five things. <laughs> yeah, I get Money. called out because I, I, I ask leading questions about what the best wines. <laughs> I'll say, tell me about Syrah and why it's your favorite. Oh. Uh, okay, here's, here's the question. Outside of Napa, if you're, if you're drinking Cabernet Sauvignon, where are you drinking if you're going outside of Napa? So I'm actually going to just re... I'm going to pivot your question because the reality is that I don't drink a ton of Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, okay. I, mm -hmm. So now I'm just talking about my favorite stuff here. So I That's like, so I go after high acid wine. I go after surprising wines. I love regions that are mm -hmm. almost too cold to make wine. I love regions where the mountains are almost too high to make wine. And I love weird islands. And so I'm going to, 
but the Canary Islands I love, for example. I'm going to the Finger Lakes, Alsace, love Riesling. I did an MW seminar in, Adel in Australia. We'd spent a long time in Adelaide Hills. That was a really surprising region. Um, I love Riesling from Clare and Eden Valley. And then the highest altitude reds I can find. I love Ribera Sacra, like some of the weird little reds from Alto Adige or somewhere else in Northern Italy. Uh, yeah, anything that surprises me. And it's usually actually a lot easier on your pocketbook too, I find. <laughs> Recently, I was in Santorini in Greece. We kind of did look a little segment on Santorini, Assyrtica. High acid, not an obscure island, but an island nonetheless. <laughs> I would um, add that to my were, list. Great call. Really, I was blown away by those wines. I had relatively low expectations and I, I don't know why, but I think maybe it's because the Assyrtico I had before wasn't island and there is a huge difference between the Assyrtico that grow on the Greek mainland and the islands and I was completely blown away. I came back with liters and liters in my suitcase. Oh, yeah, it's worth it. The, the check bag fees for sure. No, it's funny. You're, you're making me have all these memories now. So do you ever, anyone ever ask you like, what's the wine that opened your eyes to wine? Like the one that flipped mm -hmm. you, right? So mine is such a clear answer. I was, I was waitressing at a wine bar in Rome in college and my Italian was awful. And I was <laughs> dropping all my Prosecco glasses and miss, you know, mixing up all the orders. And the bartender felt so bad for me. He kept giving me wine and he gave me a Gewurz Treminer, not something I drink a lot these days, but it really rung my bell back then. A Gewurz Treminer from Alto Adige by Elena Volk was an amazing producer and I kind of changed the course of my life. Nice. Yeah. I love, Elena Volk, I love her as well. And it's her whole family. She, yeah, Anybody should look her up. She's in Trentino Alto Adige. She works now with her daughters who have come on board. My only beef with her is that was the Pinot Grigio I used for like studying and back in the day for my CMS exam. And that was only a little over five years ago, six years ago now. And those wines, I was like, wow, these are amazing wines and they're so cheap. And then I was going to go grab a bottle as I was studying for my D3 exam. And now they're like 30 bucks, 35. I mean, then again, I live in Los Angeles, but like still I was getting them for like 15 in New York City before. And I was like, what has happened? Uh, <laughs> but so uh, people have found out about her. So it's like, maybe <laughs> we shouldn't tell people about her. The secret is out. I know. <laughs> Yeah. But that's, again, the way you have to stay in business as a wine marketer. Yeah, no, I think you're, what, you, what you're interested in is definitely, it sounds like we could be good drinking buddies. If you're ever back in New York, we have a, a guy who's come on the podcast and we're going to have to follow up with him, David Keck. I think we talk about him all the time. He's an MS, but he's yeah. making wine up in Vermont from mostly hybrids, but it's kind of high acid. He makes some pet nets, but I think he makes them still now too. And Whenever anybody talks about mountains or like as north as you can go, I think about him because it's not, um, you know, it's further enough from the lakes that it's, you know, not like the Canadian wine that's made at the same latitude. It's kind of out there. So he's the best kind of he's the best kind of small producer because he's only making wines that he's interested in, which is it, it makes it interesting to talk to him. Yeah. Oh, that sounds incredible. But yeah, invitation to to you guys as well to come out to Napa, talk to the winemakers. I'd love to host you guys. Yeah, sounds great. Now, thank you so much for coming on and we will we'll have to take you up on that someday. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right, thank you. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. 
Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.